um, on uh, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter number 5, and uh, spent a good bit of time on it last week, kind of introducing it and getting it kicked off. Excuse me. Matthew chapter number 5. And uh, we'll begin reading in verse number 1, Matthew chapter 5 and verse number 1. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are they which do hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the children of God. Blessed are they which are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you, and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Father, we pray that you'll bless the message this morning for the next few moments. I pray that you would give clear direction. May your Holy Spirit work in the hearts and do a work that we cannot do. Father, we don't stand here today and just pass the time of a service so that we can check off our our duty of going to church today. But, Father, we want to hear from Your Word. We want Your Holy Spirit to do an extraordinary work, a transforming work in our lives. Lord, we ask that You would allow Him to uh, draw very near to us, and may our hearts be brought into such a frame of mind and uh, such a condition that we are hungering and thirsting and longing for Him to do something. I pray that as we go through this time that we spend together around Your Word that there will be an unusual stirring in our hearts and something that will uh, draw us closer to You, help us to be more dedicated and consecrated to You, draw our hearts closer that we would love You more. And Father, I pray that You would bless all that we say and do here today. May we not be a reproach. May we not have anything that would be a hindrance to uh, the working of Your Holy Spirit, that we would not grieve Him or quench Him, but that He would have full course to do His work in our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We spent some time last week, and just by way of giving you a little bit of background, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest sermon that we have recorded that the Lord Jesus Christ preached. It takes three chapters. In chapter 4, He speaks, first of all, of people being saved. And He deals with that in one verse. And uh, so this, this sermon is not geared for those that uh, are lost. He's not, this is not a salvation message. Very important for us to understand that at the onset because some people will read this <clears throat> and feel like this is some kind of a ladder to climb or some kind of uh, checklist that we have to go through in order to gain heaven. That is not what the Lord Jesus Christ is teaching or preaching from this, this message that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it is a message of discipleship. Once a person is saved, once we've trusted Christ as our Savior, then there is to be a uh, growth in the Christian life. Um, we're living in a day where a lot of people 
make a profession of faith. They trust Christ as their Savior, and they say, I'm saved. And then they, they just kind of say, well, that's all there was to it. I guess I'm on my way to heaven. That's all I need to do at this point. And we're, we're living in a day where a lot of people who trust Christ as their Savior are not growing in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the book of Hebrews talks about that. Uh, the writer of Hebrews says that there are some that uh, ought to be teachers themselves. They've been saved long enough. They should have grown. They should have learned Scripture. They should have been uh, studying to show themselves approved unto God, workmen that need not to be ashamed. And yet, the Bible says, and the writer of Hebrews says, that there are some of those that are like that, that are in need themselves to have the first oracles of Scripture taught to them again. They're on the milk of the Word, if you will, and not the meat of the Word. And so we find that there is a theme of Scripture that once we're saved, once we've trusted Christ as our Savior, there ought to be a desire, there ought to be a drive, there ought to be a consecration and a dedication to uh, discipling and learning from the Lord Jesus Christ how He wants us to live. It ought to be motivated by our love for Him. And it's amazing to me how many times uh, in my lifetime I've sat and heard preachers preach and they, they put the guilt trip on you. You know what I mean. There's a good way to do that. Now, there's a difference between a preacher putting a guilt trip on you and the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But there are preachers that will get out here and they'll say, you got to do it, you got to do it, and if you don't, God's going to judge you for it and He's going to really get your goat if you don't do this. That, that should never be the motivating factor for discipleship. The discipleship, the, Paul said it this way, he said, the love of Christ constrains me. He had all these things that he had given up in order to serve the Lord. And he said, I count them but none. He said, those things weren't important to me. Because I saw the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. He said, I wanted that so bad that I was willing to give up all of these other things and, and, and not even count them valuable so that I could gain the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. So that I could conform more to the image of His Son. So I could become more like Him. And so when we get saved, we don't just get uh, eternal security and go to heaven when we die. That's not the, the fullness of our salvation. But once we're saved, God saves us so that we can learn from Him how He wants us to live. We can disciple and learn how to, uh, to live the life that He wants us to live. And so this message is a message of Christ that is telling people, this is how I desire every Christian to be. Now, it's very, very important as we look into these, we read this morning what are referred to, just a small section of the Sermon on the Mount. These are referred to as the Beatitudes. And uh, then after that, we'll see uh, what are called the Similitudes. And we're going to study those in a few weeks, Lord willing. But I want you to notice something as we look in verse number 3. The Bible says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And there's a pattern that takes place here. Uh, the, the blessings of God are going to come on these folks, the, the poor in spirit. Uh, by the way, don't get that mixed up. Please don't get that mixed up. Christ is not saying here, blessed are the poor. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. There have, been, there have been denominations, there have been groups that have read this passage and they have, they have deduced from the passage that we need to give all of our belongings away and live in poverty. You need to live at the level that God has entrusted you the things that He's given to you. And you need to be good stewards of that. If He's given you a lot, then be good stewards of a lot. 
If He's given you a little, then be good stewards of a little. But don't think that the fact that you have some possessions causes you to not be spiritual. That's not what He's saying here. He's saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Big difference here. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are they that mourn, and blessed are the meek. Now, as we go to verse number 6, I want you to notice a difference in the pattern. In verse number 6, he says, blessed are they which... What's the next little two-letter word? What is it? Verse number 6, blessed are they which what? What is it? Just the the little word there. Blessed are they which what? Do. The first three verses of the Beatitudes deal with who we are on the inside. And God always seems to have this at at the foremost of everything that He teaches in Scripture. There are three things that make up every person. What we know, what we do, and what we are. And here's the sad fact of the matter. Many times we preach, because it's easy preaching, and it gets a lot of amens, and it gets a lot of people stirred up and excited and motivated. We normally preach on what we know and what we do. And the day we live, sadly, there's very little preaching on what we are on the inside. And I say this, that as we look through Scripture, you'll find this over and over and over again. In fact, let's, let's just take a look at this. Hold your place here. I'll show you a, a wonderful example of it. But let's look in, uh, in uh, verse number 9. Verse number 9. Uh, I'm sorry, chapter number 9. Matthew chapter number 9. And let's look in verse number 1. Matthew chapter 9 and verse number 1. And he entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city. And behold... They brought to him a man, sick of the palsy, lying on a bed. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer, rise up and walk. Is that what your Bible says? No, neither does mine. What does it say there? It says, be of good cheer, what? Thy sins be forgiven thee. Now, it goes on to say this, And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth, and Jesus knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether it is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk, in other words, which one's easier for me? He said he could do either one of those. But for that ye but that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house, and he arose and departed to his house. Now, we read this, and I've heard preachers preach this before, and they say, boy, a great miracle was done here. God healed the man of the palsy. No, that's not the point. A great miracle, a notable miracle was done here, but it was not the healing of the man, although that was a great miracle. The great miracle of the passage was what? That he forgave the man of his sin, didn't he? Over and over in Scripture, you will find a pattern that Christ is always more concerned with what a man is inwardly than his outward condition. Now, that does not mean that he's not concerned about the outside. He certainly is. But he is more concerned with the heart of a man than he is about what he knows and what he does. As we get to this, these Beatitudes, the very first three that he gives are all about who a person is on the inside. He begins with this message as he starts in verse number 3. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want you to understand something. We gave a little bit of this last week. If you'll read in verse number 1, the Bible says, Seeing the multitudes, he went up into the mountains, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. We talked about the two different people there. 
We have the people that are the multitudes. And the reason they're coming around the Lord Jesus Christ is because they want to see what's He going to do next. Boy, that's amazing. Wow, look at those miracles. And they're amazed. And there's wonder there. And there's awe. And then secondly, I think they come oftentimes because they, they want to see what they can get. You know, things that... Boy, He's, he's feeding the 5,000. He, he's got the fish and the loaves and we're, we're all going to get something from this. Take that souvenir home. Boy, you wouldn't believe, Mom, look what, look what Christ did for me. And those are the multitudes. They're there to, for the amusement, if you will. They're there for the interest. But then you have the disciples. They're mentioned there in verse number 1, aren't they? The disciples, if you remember in chapter number 4, Jesus comes along the Sea of Galilee. He sees James and, 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 and uh, John and He says, follow me. He sees Andrew and Peter. He says, follow me. I'll make you fishers of men. And the Bible says, immediately. And straightway, one in one case and one in the other. They left their nets. They left their boats. They left their father in one instance. And they followed him. What was the difference? On one hand, the multitudes were saying, we want to come see something amazing. We want to be amazed by it. We want to be intrigued by it. There's an interest there. On the other hand, there were some men who said, I want to know what this man has to teach me more than I value my livelihood and even my own family. And I'm willing to pay the price. And in verse number 1, we find that they left the multitudes, didn't they? They separated from them. And seeing the multitudes, he went up into a mountain and was set. And his disciples came unto him. They had to, they had to separate from the multitude in order to be taught. Interesting thing, they went up into a mountain. The disciples had to put a little bit of effort. You ever climb a mountain? As I get older, I huff and puff walking up the sidewalk. You ever try to go up a mountain? There's a little cost in being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, isn't there? Sometimes it's not the most convenient thing. Sometimes there's going to take some effort along the way. These disciples come to Him when He said, He begins to teach them. And the very first thing that He teaches them, He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Well, that's an interesting phrase, isn't it? The kingdom of heaven. You'll find it most commonly used in the Old Testament in reference to the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Jews thought He was coming as the King and as the Messiah and as the Deliverer back in the day when He came as the Savior of man. They didn't expect Him to come in a stable. They didn't expect Him to come the way that He did. For a large, in a large part, that's why a lot of the Jews don't recognize Jesus as their Messiah. They were expecting Him to come as a conquering king. And by the way, He is going to, isn't He? In the millennial reign, He's coming to rule and reign. He's got an everlasting kingdom. We spoke a little bit about that in Sunday school today. He's got an everlasting kingdom. And when that kingdom comes, and the, and the, and the millennial reign, when that kingdom comes, and the Lord Jesus Christ is the king, and He's ruling, there, there's going to be some amazing things happening. Can you imagine being there, the joy that's going to be in this place? I mean, I mean... You're not, going to, you're not going to gripe about the government and the laws they're making. Everything's going to be perfect. Uh, the, the, the justice that's going to be meted out, it's going to be perfect. It's going to bring satisfaction. It's going to bring joy to the hearts of people. When people are redeemed, when people trust Christ as their Savior, there's great joy that's given about that. Could you imagine sitting around in heaven? How many of y'all, how many of y'all are nothing more than a dirty, rotten, no good sinner? <laughs> That should be most all of us, okay? 
I'm thankful, aren't you, that Christ saved me. I'm a sinner, but I'm saved by the grace of God. And I have righteousness that I did not earn. I didn't have to work for it. I didn't have to, to try to do good deeds to get it. When I trusted Christ as my Savior, He gave me His righteousness. Could you imagine sitting around uh, one of these days in, in the time of the, the, the millennial reign and, and to say to one another, uh, Brother Mark, man, I can't believe you made it here, brother. I'll tell you what, tell, how did you get here? And he's going to start telling me the story. And I don't know if he's a shouter or a crier. He may start shouting and hollering and be like, man, you won't believe what God did for me. He's going to tell me the redemptive story. There's going to be rejoicing in that. By the way, we're going to spend eternity rejoicing and worshiping God for what He has done for us. And if we are not used to or comfortable doing it now, we might as well get used to it because it's going to happen. We're going to spend eternity worshiping Him, thanking Him, loving Him with all of our hearts for what He has done for us. Could you imagine the joy of that place? The splendor as that time takes place. When Jesus speaks here, there is certainly, no doubt, a reference to the coming kingdom. But I want you to notice the wording that He uses. When He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs... What's the next word here? Is. The kingdom of heaven. Can I tell you this? That the kingdom of heaven is more than a, a place. There's a, a spirit of the, of the kingdom of heaven that when we get saved, we begin to experience a little bit of that joy now. It doesn't say that, that one of these days the poor in spirit will inherit the kingdom of heaven. It says that right now, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I wonder what the poor in spirit means. Let's take a few moments to look at this for a minute. Put yourself in the setting. Put yourself in the context. Here are the men that have walked away literally from everything that they hold dear. They love fishing. How many of you love fishing? Brother Jim, you can raise your hand on that one. There you go. Some of you love fishing. How many of you, every time you go fishing, the fish were bigger after you caught them and released them than they were when you actually caught them? You know what I'm talking about. These men loved it. They ate, slept, and drank fishing. That's what they did for a living. They were mending their nets. They kept their boats. It was their livelihood. It's how they lived day by day. They, they, they loved the fact that they could be around their families. In fact, James and John uh, uh, were there uh, in the boat with their father, Zebedee. The Bible says that when Jesus called them and said, Follow me and I will make you fishers of men, the promise of teaching and training them in some new area was enough to say, I'm willing to give all of that up that I hold most dear. I want what He has. Oh, I want what He has. By the way, it ought to be the heart's desire of every Christian as we come to this book and we learn more and more about our Savior to say, oh, I want to be like that. Ah, man, I, he is such an example. I want to be just what he wants me to be. I want to find out. I, I, found, some, I found some things today. and Oh, I want to find some more. Because I want to learn what he has for me. But there's something I found over the years. There was a phrase we used to use when I was a kid. And uh, uh, everybody's 
got a friend or, or somebody they know, grew up with, that they could point to. Maybe if you can't think of anyone, then you were it. That was a know-it-all. You remember that expression, know-it-all? didn't matter what you asked them about, they had the answer and they knew. And if they didn't know, they made up an answer. You know what I'm talking about? They acted like the authority. You couldn't tell them anything. How many of your parents have children like that? <laughs> Don't raise your hand. You're going to make them upset. Uh, I know it all. I was watching a fellow a number of years ago. He was preaching, and he, he was using an illustration about being filled with the Holy Spirit in our lives. And he brought a glass to the, to the pulpit, and it had water all the way up to the very top. And he had another pitcher of water over here. And he said, you know, we're going to let this picture represent the Holy Spirit. He said, we're going to let this cup represent our lives. He said, the Holy Spirit wants to fill us, but we are already full of ourselves. Not much room for Him. He said, in order for the Holy Spirit to have complete and full filling of that vessel, you have to take this first. And empty the self out of it. And put it back down and say, Holy Spirit, here it is. It's yours. We're living in a day where people are full of themselves. And I hate to say this this way, but it's true. That even among God's people, there are many that say, I like my life the way it is. I don't want to change it. I don't have a desire to pattern my life after this book because I've already got so much in there that I love. In fact, didn't Jesus make a statement along these lines to some men who wanted to follow Him? He said, you need to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Me. There's an emptying of self that must take place. In order to be a disciple, and Jesus is is speaking here, He's laying a foundation for all the things that He's going to teach over the next three chapters. He says, first thing, fellas, you've come up here, you've separated from the multitude, you've, you've made the effort to come and hear what I have to say. The very first thing you need to do, guys, is you need to become poor in spirit. There needs to be a brokenness. There needs to be an emptying. There needs to be a saying, Lord, I don't want any of what I know. I want all of what You know. I don't want to have my philosophy. I don't want to have my thoughts on things. I want to know what Your thoughts are. And I want them to become mine. We're living in a day, I don't know how many times I've heard over the years, people say this, well, I know what the Bible says, and then they follow that with a little three-letter word. What is it? But. You've heard it too, haven't you? You know what we're saying when we do that? We're saying, I have my thoughts on it. And I don't care about what these thoughts are. And we're living in that day. We're living in the day where men and women do not care what the Bible says. Because, hey, I know what I think about it. That's not poor in spirit. Hold your place here for a moment in Matthew. We're going to come right back to it. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter number 12, if you will. Romans chapter number 12, and we all know verses 1 and 2 very, very well. I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice. 
What a wonderful verse and passage that deals with what I believe is being poor in spirit. He says, present your bodies living sacrifice, holy except one to God, which is your reasonable service. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And I want you to see what verse number 3 says. For I say through the grace given unto me, to every man that is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, According as God hath dealt to every man the what? Measure of faith. He says, listen, you need, to, you, need to, you need to slow down on how much you think of yourself and let God do some things in your life. There's a measure of faith that He gives to us. And I believe very, very strongly that in this verse, there's an indication that the measure of faith is either increased or limited by the view of ourselves. Am I empty? Do I have, do I have a, a confidence in myself? We teach often that as Christians, there ought to be a boldness, there ought to be a confidence in sharing the gospel. But I, I wrote a couple notes down here on this thought. There, there's a possibility of confidence being sinful and being wrong. What makes the difference? Should we have confidence? Well, absolutely. I think the Bible teaches that there ought to be a, a bold uh, confidence. But what makes it sinful is the object that we're basing our confidence on. If my confidence is the fact that I am able to do this, or I think this, or this is my view on this thing, and my confidence is in what I think, that becomes pride, that becomes arrogance, and that is sinful. Where we have confidence, where it is not sinful, is when we say, Lord, I cannot. And any confidence that I have in preaching or sharing the gospel with anyone is absolutely 100% confidence that I have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spoke of that very highly. In fact, you know, it's amazing. Jesus said to His disciples in another time, he said, without me, ye can do what? Nothing. That will really build your confidence, won't it? Go out and tell somebody you can't do anything. Boy, thank you for that confidence booster. But he also told the disciples, with men it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. What is he speaking of here, somebody being poor in spirit? Somebody that will literally empty himself of himself. And say, Lord, I don't want what I know, what I hold to, what I've worked on. I don't want to rest on those things. I don't want to have confidence in self. I understand and I recognize that without you, I am nothing. To get to a place in our lives where our humility is, Lord, if you can't do a work in my life, if you don't do a work in my life, then it can't be done because I have no confidence in self. Look with me, if you will, in Philippians chapter number 2. Christ, who did not have to, gave an example to us. Isn't that an amazing thought? Christ, who is perfect in every way, decided that He was going to 
do some things that show us imperfect humans how we ought to be on the inside. Look in Philippians chapter 2 for a moment. He says, if there, in verse number 1, If there be therefore any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies, fulfill you my joy that you may be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord of one mind. Now he says this, Let nothing... How much? Nothing. Let nothing be done through strife or vainglory, but in lowliness of mind. Let us each esteem other better than themselves. Look not every man on his own things, but every man also on the things of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. What mind? What mind is he speaking of here? He tells us. This is the mind that Jesus had. Who being in the form of God, even though he had reason to glory, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself, even though he had every right to have the glory of God and to claim the glory of God. He's God himself, isn't he? I mean, he is God's Son. Did Jesus have the right to the glory of the Father? Absolutely he did. But, the Bible says, he made himself of what? No reputation and took upon him the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of man. Why? Why did he do that? To teach us a very valuable lesson. And that is that before God can do any kind of teaching and training, let's use the word discipling us, we must first get to the place in here of emptying ourselves. I'm not going to think highly of myself. You know one of the amazing things, the testimony about the Apostle Paul? When he began his ministry, he referred to himself as a sinner that was saved by the grace of God. All the years that Paul labored, about the middle part or so, he said, I am a great, great sinner. You know what he said at the end of his ministry? He said, I am the chiefest of sinners. Paul, every day, he said, I have to bring my thoughts into captivity. He said, I have to buffet my body, the the flesh. It wants these things. I I have to bring it into subjection every single day that I may win Christ. These men were already willing to pay the price, weren't they? They had already left all that was precious. They had already climbed the mountain. They had already separated from the multitude. They said, more than anything, Christ, we want what You have to teach. In fact, they spent three and a half years following Him everywhere He went. Listening to everything He taught. Soaking it all in. But before they could soak it in, they had to be empty. Now notice what he says here. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the what? Kingdom of heaven. They can experience all of the things. Think about this. 
When we get to the millennial reign, what are we going to be doing? We're going to be sitting at Jesus' feet. We're going to be listening to Him. He's going to be the King. He's going to be the one that passes the laws. He's going to be the one that makes judgment. And we're going to sit there and we're going to listen to Him. We're going to learn. We're going to sit there and we're going to praise Him and give Him thanks for all that He has done for us. We're going to look to Him with an absolute awe. And everything He says, our answer will already be yes, Lord. What Jesus is saying here is if we can ever get to the place of being poor in spirit, that we'll be able to do those things now. We'll be able to look at Jesus now and say, Lord, I want to know everything You have to say. I want to soak it in. I want to sit at Your feet. I want to hear You have absolute rule over my life. You are the King of me. If we can ever get to that point. The greatest battle of a Christian is the surrender of self. Let me say that one more time. The greatest battle of a Christian is the surrender of self. It's the thing that hinders us in so many ways. It hinders the Holy Spirit doing His work. It hinders us growing. We certainly are not poor in spirit. The disciples, one day, they had heard Christ pray. Could you imagine? Could you imagine being there? Christ is there. He lifts His eyes to the Father and He begins to pray. Could you imagine hearing Him pray? Oh, I could only think of what that was like. These disciples were so amazed with it. They said, Lord, teach us to pray. They didn't didn't have Christ come and say, let me teach you to pray. And they said, oh, no, we got this. I know how. (laughs) I've been praying since I was a kid. They didn't do that. They came to Him hungry. They came to Him empty. They came to Him with a broken and a contrite spirit. said, we don't know how to do that. We want to pray. Would you teach us how? And for three and a half years, they said, Lord, we are hungering and we are thirsting for what you have to teach us. Jesus starts off the Beatitudes with three verses dealing with what we are on the inside. There was some sacrifice that had to take place, there was some cost in being a disciple. There were three other men a while later as the Lord was ministering. Three men, one of them came to Him and said, Lord, I'll follow Thee whithersoever Thou goest. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. Son of man hath not where to lay his head. He called another one and the guy said, Well, I'll go with you. I'll follow you whithersoever Thou goest. He said, I've got some things I need to deal with first. I got some some stuff I need to take care of. Another one said, I gotta bury my father. You know the problem with those guys, and I've said it so often before, was not an unwillingness to follow Christ. It was an unwillingness to follow him first. They were full of themselves, didn't they, weren't they? They had so many things they wanted 
And you never hear of those three men again. You know what I wonder? I wonder, one, are they going to be in heaven? And if they are in heaven, when we get there, I wonder what kind of regret, looking back, they will say they have. Because they weren't willing to be poor in spirit. So that they could have the kingdom of heaven. So that the great joys of what Christ would be as the king of their life would be theirs. I wonder if we could ask that question not of those three fellows, but could we ask that question of ourselves today? Are we willing? Are we willing to give all of ourselves over to empty us of ourselves, our desires, our dreams, our plans, and say, Lord, I want only what you want for me? Are we willing to give up that which is most precious to us in order to learn and to follow Christ completely and wholly? fully surrendered and yielded to Him. You say, oh yes, I want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to, I want to obey everything that He tells me to do. <laughs> Let me ask you a quick question here. How does Christ speak to us today? Do we sit out in our backyards and wait for the sun to be just right, streaming through the clouds on the blue, blue, blue skies? A pristine day and all of a sudden the clouds part and the light shines down on us and the voice from heaven comes. Is that how He speaks? He doesn't do that, does He? He speaks to us through this book right here. And this is an amazing thing to me. How often we say, I want to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then we never read to see what He has to tell us. I would say if that's the case, then we're a multitude. But we're not a disciple. The question today is, are we a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ? When He saved us, yes, He gave us eternal life. And I'm thankful for that. But that's not all He saved us for. He saved us because He wants us to be all that He wants us to be in our lives. He wants us to be pleasing to Him. He wants us to learn to live the way that makes Him happy. And we don't have to scratch our heads and wonder. We don't even have to go and find it all through all these pages of Scripture. He gives us a message in three chapters. He says, this is how I want you to live. This is how I want you to be. Are we willing to empty ourselves and say, yes, Lord, I want to know those things. I want to live those things. I want to be those things. Let's stand together, shall we, with heads bowed. Father, we're thankful for Your Word. What a joy it is to hold it in our hands. Lord, help us to never, never, just frivolously handle it or to be callous towards it. May we hold it near to our hearts and precious to us. May we read its pages with a desire.